0: Hello friends, Chris Matthew with Forbidden Knowledge News here with a special announcement. We are starting production on the Forbidden Documentary. That's right, we're breaking out the camera, lights, microphone, and hitting the road. This is going to be much bigger than your average conspiracy doc. It's going to be a conspiracy docu-series. And we're going to take all of you on the road with Forbidden Knowledge news, as well as all your favorite guests that have appeared over the years, authors, researchers, scientists, whistleblowers, contactees, fellow broadcasters, and some of you listening as well. The topics will include paranormal, ufology, historical conspiracies, hidden ancient history, current conspiracies, spirituality, cryptids, and much, much more. We're going to visit sacred and spiritual sites and places of high, high strangeness, and hopefully visit with as many of you along the way as possible. This project is currently completely self-funded, and we're asking for your help. We are going to jump into this head first, and hopefully the universe and maybe some of our amazing audience will help a bit. If you'd like to get involved with the production, email me knowledge forbiddenknowledgenews at gmail.com. And if you would like to help by leaving a donation, we have a Buy Me a Coffee or PayPal option. You can go to supportfkn.com or click that PayPal link in the description. Any amount is greatly appreciated and will help tremendously. And if you make a donation through supportfkn.com, you're going to also get access to select chapters from Corey Hughes' upcoming book about the JFK assassination. Be a part of an epic journey of discovery and truth with The Forbidden Documentary. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is Corey Hughes. Before we bring him on, just a couple of announcements. Forbidden Knowledge News is, of course, always available on Rockfin. We're available on Minds Now, Odyssey, Rumble, and all podcast platforms. We're limited on YouTube, but we have so many other options for you to get all of our content, like Rockfin, where you get all our premium content, but you also get all the premium and free content from every creator there on Rockfin. Just go to rockfin.com slash FKN plus or click the link in the description to sign up. Our website is ForbiddenKnowledge.news. It's the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network. We feature some badass podcasts on there. All those links are in the description. And finally, check out our friends at Fake Mask. That's right. There are still, unfortunately, some that are being required to wear masks for work or even airlines. Check out Fake Mask. They have the most breathable and authentic-looking masks on the market. You click the link in the description, you get 10% off your order. And today I want to welcome back to the show Corey Hughes. He is a historian researcher, host of Understanding Propaganda and co-host of Day Zero. He is currently finishing up his book about the JFK assassination. Corey, welcome back. How you doing?
1: Hello. Thanks for having me once again.
0: <clears throat> yes, sir. It's gonna be a good episode. We're gonna go we're gonna get more updates from the research you're doing on for your book. You actually have some profound revelations about oswald which i can't wait to get into as well as some other juicy nuggets we'll talk about uh so where do you want to start with this one
1: all right so uh we're going to talk about oswald today and i never really talk about oswald much and i don't put much focus on him because in as far as the actual assassination goes he's completely irrelevant he had nothing to do with the assassination uh he did not i don't believe he knew it was coming i don't believe that he was associated with it, with it in any way, shape, or form. There's no evidence to suggest that he even knew any of the people involved other than David Ferry, Clay Shaw, and Carrie, a guy named Carrie Thornley, who was one of two people who was actually impersonating Oswald for years leading up to the assassination. The earliest incident of Kerry Thornley in New Orleans impersonating Oswald goes back to 1961. Long before there was a plot to kill Kennedy, they were establishing uh, Oswald as this violent, angry, dissident communist while he was in the Soviet Union, which was part of a false defector program. And we'll talk about that. But the 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 first and the most controversial thing I want to talk about with Oswald is in regards to the work by a guy named John Armstrong. So. When the Warren Commission came out and people were doing research on the Warren Commission, it became uh, noted that starting at a time period around 1947, going way back, I used to think it was starting around 52 or 53, but in reality, around 1947, when Oswald was only about eight or nine years old, there is ample evidence that there were two different sets of uh, not only school records, but uh, records of having been to the doctor uh, and housing records for Marguerite Oswald, his mother, of which there is, believe it or not, also starting in this 1947 time period, there was a duplicate Marguerite Oswald. All this is in my presentation, uh, a warning from history that's up on Odyssey but it sounds absolutely insane right that there would be this guy who's accused of killing the president for you know 15 or 16 years before the assassination there were attempts to uh, have a duplicate Oswald that basically lived in his shadow moved around to the same cities that Oswald lived in and both of them went by the name Lee Harvey Oswald it sounds insane however when you think of the era Post-World War II, we're now no longer at war with Germany. The Cold War is uh, in its earliest stages, and we needed a new enemy, right? And the we knew this, the Americans knew this, and the OSS knew this before the war was even over, um, because if you go back before the end of World War II, you go back to like nineteen, early 1944, mid-1944, we had already started to smuggle nazis out of europe and into south america and that continued on till the basically uh, 1946 or so so uh and the reason for that the, the reason they give for having done that uh was that they uh, the nazis were enemies of the soviets and they thought that they the nazis who were remaining particularly Reinhard galen and his vast spy network that he had already established in the soviet union he thought that, uh, or Dulles, Alan Dulles believed that recruiting these Nazis and bringing them over to America would be necessary for the fight against the Soviets, even though at the time, the Soviets were our allies in helping defeating the Nazis, right? So this is like some double backstabbing going on here. And so uh, they basically created this in- immense spy network with the recruitment of Reinhard Galen and Otto Scorzani Reinhard Galen was Adolf Hitler's uh, uh, spy master and the, the top general in the German army. And Otto Skorzeny, uh was uh, a, a diehard soldier and he was like the elite of the elite, and he ended up being Hitler's bodyguard. So these two men had each established their own spy networks during World War II. Uh, and when those networks combined, there was somewhere around 700,000 active operatives throughout Europe, North Africa, and the Soviet Union. They had Soviet dissidents who had aligned with the Nazis uh, that were part of this network. So to Alan Dulles and the, and the OSS, who would go on to become the CIA in 47, it was like a no-brainer. Hey, we know you're our enemy and we're blowing up your country, but hey, come over to America and work with us against the Soviets. That's kind of how it went. And so when you think about the fervor to how, uh, to, against uh, the Soviet Union and what, they, what would they be willing to do to get a spy into the Soviet Union, they were willing to do anything right? So um, the idea is that they took a kid, probably six, seven years old, who spoke fluent Russian from some Eastern Bloc country, brought him back to the United States, where then they would raise him under a, a duplicate name of someone who they were already working with, right? So Robert Lee Oswald is allegedly Oswald's father, but he supposedly died a couple months before Oswald was born. There's virtually no information on this guy. I wouldn't even be surprised if he wasn't Oswald's father, right? So there's no nothing we don't know anything about Oswald's dad, other than the guy was most certainly working for intelligence, most certainly CIA. And so you bring a child back from the from wherever who speaks fluent Russian, you raise him in America with English as a second language with the same name as somebody else, and you keep them in the in, in the other child's shadow, right? So uh, we first found evidence of this up in New York, and then later in Dallas, Fort Worth, and then in New Orleans, uh, particularly with uh, conflicting school records. So, around 1952-53, Oswald is well documented to have gone to uh, PS 44 in the Bronx, in up in New York. However, um, duplicate records have appeared. Showing that Oswald actually went to PS 177 at the exact same time that he was at PS 44. Uh, now, when Oswald was in school, we are taught, we are told that when he was in school, he was a truant and that he never made it to class, and that he ended up uh, going to court a bunch of times, and then the court ended up putting him in a boy in a youth home, in a boy's house called Youth Home is what it was called, and. But uh, over the years, the records have surfaced from PS44 showing that Oswald had a nearly perfect attendance record all throughout the same year. So the official story says that he was a truant, was not a loner, and didn't do well in school. But John Armstrong found the records uh, from PS44 showing that he was a near-perfect student. He also uncovered Oswald's health records that showed that year Oswald at PS44 was um, he, his height was five foot four inches tall, and he weighed 115 pounds. Well, uh, one of the psychiatrists who had met with Oswald at the youth home described Oswald as around between four foot six and four foot eight, and that he was a gaunt and malnourished, reminiscent of children that he had seen in the concentration camps of Europe. So at the exact same time, uh, 1953 school year, you've got Two sets of school records. You've got two sets of health records indicating completely different descriptions of these guys as far as the height goes. And so most Kennedy researchers just ignore this as mistakes, but it's not mistakes. Uh, after that happens, when Oswald moves back to New Orleans in the in the nineteen fifty four school year, um, he is going to Beauregard, where we have complete records and we actually have photographs of him at Beauregard. And we have interviews with people who knew him at Beauregard. However, at the exact same time, uh, the first six weeks of that school year, we have another set of duplicate records of Oswald from Stripling Junior High School in Fort Worth. Um, Not only did Robert Oswald, who was Oswald's brother, uh, testify that uh, Lee definitely went to Stripling, at least for that first semester. but we have interviews with students who knew him at Stripling, but the records that we, the other records we have and the, the official story says that he went to Beauregard. So there were many, many problems with this like duplicate Oswald that has arisen over the years that John Armstrong found. I find his work to be, his conclusions that he drew, he attributed all the actions that happened in Dallas and the setup and the lead up towards the assassination to this duplicate Oswald. And he was completely wrong about that. Um, there were two men in particular who were posing as Lee Harvey Oswald post 1961. And that's Kerry Thornley and a guy named William Seymour. So um, Armstrong loses me for once um, Lee goes off to the Soviet Union. Uh, when Lee goes off to the Soviet Union, he's there for about three years. Um, the interesting thing about him uh, in, in the Soviet Union is he ends up getting assigned because the government it was communist, you know, so they told you where you live, they gave you an apartment. And that's just how communism worked. He ended up going to Minsk where he worked in a, a factory assembling radios. Oswald's salary as an entry level radio guy building radios was higher than the manager of the plant. He made more money than anybody in that facility. It makes no sense whatsoever. But um, after Oswald returns, from the soviet union let me see i'm gonna skim through my notes and see where i want to pick up here
0: i want to uh, (coughs) remind everybody in the audience if you have questions as we go along leave those in the chat and we'll get to those as soon as we can
1: so um just to close out on the on the uh the conflicting school records the vice uh principal of stripling junior high school in fort worth was a guy named frank kudlady uh k-u-d-l-a-t-y And he got a call from the principal on November 23rd, the day after the assassination. He tells Kudlady to go to the school and gather all records pertaining to Lee Harvey Oswald and that the FBI will meet him there to pick up those records. So Kudlady goes to the school, gathers all of Lee Harvey Oswald's stuff. He looks at it to verify that it's Oswald. And in the interviews he gave to Armstrong, it absolutely was. And then the FBI took those records and they just disappeared off the face of the earth. So yes, there was absolutely some sort of uh, something going on with two people using the name of Lee Harvey Oswald from going all the way back to 1947 at the earliest. And so um, after, after that era and after um, Oswald goes off to the Soviet Union, his trip to the Soviet union, it was rather unusual. It uh, took place in late 1959, early 1960. And the first thing he does is he, see nobody would get a visa to go to the Soviet union. So what he does is he applies for this school called the Albert Schweitzer College, which is in uh, Zurich, Switzerland. And so that's where he's supposed to be going. And so he goes there and uh, basically he never arrives. He Once he gets uh, into France, he changes his travel plans and he ends up going to Helsinki, where in Helsinki, he is given a visa to get into the Soviet Union in one day. Normally, a visa takes a week, two weeks, however long it takes to do a background check on you. But he was able to obtain a visa within 24 hours. Um, When you look at the Albert Schweitzer College that he was supposed to be going to, It turns out that it was run by a guy named Percival Brundage, and Percival Brundage had worked in Eisenhower's administration as a budget director. Sounds like a Um, Hogwarts teacher. (laughs) (laughs) You're absolutely correct. So he, uh, so Percival Brundage turns out that he, uh, besides being the head of that college at the time, he later went on to run Southern Air Transport, uh, which was known as the CIA's airline in the Caribbean and Southeast. So. Um, so he gets this visa that he shouldn't be able to get, and he gets it overnight. And the school he was supposed to go to that helped provide that front for him was obviously being run by the CIA, or at least had direct CIA contacts. Um, the unusual thing about his dropping out of the military was that he said he had to leave the military because his mother was injured and he had to take care of her. Well, he gets to, um, Fort Worth where she's at at the time and, he's there for three days before leaving. So the entire story about her being injured was completely bunk, right? This is one of the themes that you'll find when you study Oswald. Everything about the guy is fake. Like nothing about him is authentic. I don't, I don't even understand. I, I wish I could know who the real Lee Harvey Oswald was, like what he really thought and what he really believed. He was obviously part of intelligence. And uh, the pro, there was a program going on at the exact same time Um, That the CIA was operating called AE Balcony. And AE Balcony, what that was, it was put in place in 1959 and it was actually executed between 1960 and 1962. And what that did was it used um, naturalized American citizens who spoke um, what they call Baltic languages, who were fluent in Baltic languages, and that, that would include Russian. Um, this is right in their documents and it's crazy because it completely aligns with the circumstances surrounding Oswald. So AE balcony goes into place in 59 and then almost immediately early 1960 Oswald's over there. Now, John Armstrong had a theory that of the two Oswalds of, uh, while he was growing up, you know, with the conflicting school records, that one of them was in fact a, uh, English as a second language person and that their primary language was Russian. And if that's the case, That would completely fit with AE Balcony, and they're using naturalized, you know, fluent speakers in these Baltic languages. So that would be it's a perfect fit. Um, And so AE Balcony, uh, and also they indicate that they provided um, all the expenses and all that stuff for these people who were going over there. AE Balcony um, ended up combining with another program called Redskin, and Redskin was where they were trying to focus on. The same criteria, naturalized Americans who speak fluent Russian or whatever, um, but who went overseas as students. Okay. So that kind of fits with his applying to the Albert Schweitzer College, right? Like that would be the front um, for that program. But the idea with Redskin was to use students who were permanently um, relocated for educational purposes um, to have them make contacts and report back to a, to a handler uh, whatever information they could find. So it, um, the official story on these programs are that they were ultimately a failure. There, were, there are notes indicating that they had sent some of these spies over there uh, and they could not get them back. It was a sentence, it was one line, and said, out of all the people we've sent, we've only been able to exfiltrate one. So I have a feeling we lost a bunch of spies who probably got busted by the KGB as part of this program. But overall, the AE balcony program and Redskin programs were uh, mostly a failure. So after Oswald comes back to the US, um, this is kind of strange. So when uh, Oswald has a half brother named John Pick. And in the 1952-1953 era, John Pick was, uh, is this, you know, the official story says he was in the Air Force, but I have evidence that he was working with Naval Intelligence at the time. And he was working with a guy named Fred Korth, who, um, even though he was in the Air Force, he is somehow connected with Naval Intelligence at that time. Uh, Fred Korth ends up being the lawyer for Marguerite Oswald's husband, whose name was Eckdahl, and they got a divorce. And Fred Korth was the lawyer for Eckdahl, besides being this guy who's high up in the in the Air Force or Naval Intelligence. Um, uh, He's the lawyer for Ekdal. They get a divorce. And so we know that Fred Korth personally knew Oswald and knew Oswald's brother and knew Oswald's mother. He was intimately familiar with the family situation uh, because of his role as Ekdal's lawyer. Well, um, when you fast forward to Lee's uh, return from the Soviet Union, you'll find that the person who directly handled uh, the uh, the people at the State Department and got all the paperwork and everything ready for Oswald to return was, in fact, Fred Korth. And then later, when you have Oswald working at the Book Depository, one of the bosses at the Book Depository was a guy named Roy Truly. Roy Truly was married to a woman who was Fred Korth's first cousin. So Fred Korth, who was who ended up becoming at the time of the assassination, he was the secretary of the Navy. He ran the whole Navy. Um, uh, you see from uh, the interaction with Oswald goes back over 10 years. So Oswald and Fred Korth were personally associated for that whole 10 year period. Uh, and it seems like Fred Korth had a major hand in the, um, I don't want to say manipulation of Oswald, but the, he was definitely in on all of the activities that Oswald was up to uh, pretty much the entire time he was in the Marines. And then ultimately when he brought him back from the Soviet Union. So you have a lot of people who are very high up in the U.S. government who were associated with Oswald long before he ended up uh, coming back to the States. And I have a feeling that all this will connect to Robert Lee Oswald, who was Oswald's alleged father. I think if we actually figured out more information on him, if we had more information on him, we would see that he was probably a real high up guy in the CIA and that he was connected to all these people. And that's why he and his entire family were brought into this program with the duplicate Oswalds going all the way back to the late 1940s, this all sounds crazy. But you have to think: what were the what was the United States government willing to do to try to get a spy into the Soviet Union? And they were willing to do anything that they could. So, Oswald comes back from the Soviet Union, and they uh, he, he brings a Russian bride uh, with him. So Marina Oswald. This is crazy because in the. Uh, In the 1960s, Russians couldn't leave the country like that's it. You're a Russian. You're stuck there. You're not going fucking anywhere. Um, You definitely can't leave to go live in America. Right. But they let Oswald, this guy who they absolutely knew was working for intelligence. Like that's the only reason they let him in the country in the first place is because they knew. And they're like, we'll just bring him in and we'll see what he does. And maybe he can lead us to something. you know, we can figure something out with him. And so people, a lot of people think that maybe he Oswald turned and he was kind of a Russian double agent. I don't believe that whatsoever. Um, and the entire idea really for those programs was to go there and live, right? Live there and then see who you can make friends with, see what kind of contacts you can make. So he didn't have to go there and be doing secret spy missions while he was there. That was not the point. So he ends up coming back with his bride, Marina. And let me tell you, Marina, when you when, and I only figured this out in the past couple of weeks. Marina, when you go through who she was related to her uncle, her, fir- her, her direct uncle was like the third person in charge in the KGB, super high up in the KGB uh, food chain, you know? <laughs> and so they just let her leave to come back to the United States. And then uh, you will find that Marina played a major, major role in the setup of Oswald. She was not, she was his wife, but probably not by choice. And there are a couple uh, think, there are a couple pieces of written material that are attributed to Oswald showing that, you know, he owned the rifle and had a fake secret service card, co- uh, a selective service card. Um, well, when uh, at the tippet shooting, they find a wallet that has Oswald's selective service card in it with, uh, Os- with the signature Alec Heidel. Alec Hydell is allegedly the alias that Oswald was using. Well, when the FBI uh, did a handwriting analysis on all of the documents alleged to be Oswald's, they found that the signature on the Selective Service card was done by Marina. There's also another, there's a photograph of, um, I don't remember what the photograph is of. It's of Oswald. He might have been with some Russian newspapers or something like that. Or maybe it had the rifle in it. Uh, but on the back of the photograph, it says, uh, it, was, it was to George de It was a gift to him. It says to George de uh killer of fascists or something like that. Um, and that was used to show that Oswald was connected to the rifle and his violent tendencies. Well, the handwriting analysis once again showed that Marina actually wrote that on the back. There are two or three other documents that are alleged to have been written by Oswald that were actually written by Marina. So Marina was most certainly involved in the setup. Uh, when he gets to, to Dallas Fort Worth, they befriend George de who when you study George de he's a fascinating guy. He... Um, is of like he's descendant of like these uh uh of, of nobility in like uh Norway or one of or, or not Sweden but or maybe Finland, one of these weird countries. And his ori- the original family name was de Morn Scaled, uh, not de Morn Shield. It was kind of uh changed when they came to America, but they were real high up and they were uh, in their uh, in their cast, so to speak. And uh George de Morn Shield was most certainly a nazi spy in the 1930s unquestionably he was a a covert agent for the nazis which is probably where he met his contacts in american intelligence to be honest so he ends up coming back to the states uh i believe in the 1940s and the first thing he does is he gets a job working with humble oil uh down in texas and he's working directly with george bush and prescott bush and jack valente who at the time is only like uh, 15 16 years old working at humble Oil as a, like a hall boy, he would run mail back and forth and do all kinds of, you know, little stuff like that. So, um, and then you have, uh, Ruth and Michael Payne, um, Michael Payne, his, uh, stepfather is the inventor of and founder of Bell Helicopter. And if you know anything about the Vietnam war, they called it the war of heroin and helicopters. Cause that's really all they fucking did. There was no point in us being there, but the military industrial complex in its early stages was able to move uh, the number is cr- crazy, like 150,000 helicopters at a couple million apiece or something like that. It was insane. And of course, uh, in Saigon, uh, you have Ted Shackley, who set up the uh, heroin processing facility at the Pepsi bottling company plant. Uh, so basically, that was the whole reason for Vietnam, to sell helicopters and to sell heroin. And so Michael Payne, his stepfather, is the guy who founded Bell Helicopter, which is just crazy. Um, so he's definitely CIA. He's working at a place called Mashad, which was um, a defense contractor uh, de- directly connected with NASA and aerospace stuff. And Ruth uh, Ruth Payne, her maiden name was Ruth Hyde. And so her father was a guy named, I believe it was George Hyde, who was uh, a member of the CIA and like best friends with Alan Dulles. Like, so this whole family is connected to CIA. George DeMorn connected to CIA. So every person... That you'll find Oswald talks to, deals with, has any interaction with throughout the entire, uh, his his entire life that we know of, 100% of them were directly connected to the Central Intelligence Agency. So um, I don't believe for a split second that Oswald was a communist. Um, he was most certainly an undercover agent at this point in 1962. The uh, the plans for the assassination have not come into play yet. I believe that happens in early 1963, probably February or March. Um, so, at, for some reason, the program with Oswald is is still. They're setting him up, right? He's being set up as uh, as a communist for what? Who knows? Maybe they want to get him into Cuba, right? Maybe they want him to get into Cuba as a communist, and then he can be a spy down in Cuba. That's kind of what I'm leaning towards because there was no plan for the assassination as of yet. Um, I believe possibly when that seemed kind of unlikely and they knew they had to take out Kennedy, they already had this operative, Lee Oswald, who was being making uh, impressions everywhere as being a communist, right? So a big part of the Uh, Oswald was a communist myth was his connection to the Fair Play for Cuba committee, right? So he's... I would like to play a video real quick. Yeah, you're good. All right. Um... Oh. um, Well, well, that sucks. My... uh zoom is not set up for it for some reason i don't know what i have to do but i can't do it here okay uh, So
0: if you wanna um i don't know if you can send me that and i can pop it up there yeah yeah i got a link all right well while waiting while i'm waiting for you to do that i uh, got a couple of questions in the chat uh sure. life hope uh the message is going now but I, I think she asked something about uh, was oswald stationed in japan and how many oswalds do you think there were
1: ah uh, so That's a great, that's a fucking great question. So Oswald is confirmed to have been at at Sugi, Japan, but this is a problem. This is an area I still need to further explore. So fast forward to New Orleans, 61 to 63. Kerry Thornley is impersonating Oswald in New Orleans. Um, He tries to go and buy a whole bunch of uh, trucks from the Bolton Ford dealership and, there, he's uh, there with a heavyset Latino guy, and they're trying to buy trucks for the Friends of Democratic Cuba. This is at a time when Oswald is still in the Soviet Union, right? So Kerry Thornley ends up being uh, the person who killed J.D. Tippett. Everyone, witnesses say they saw Oswald kill J.D. Tippett. Uh, Oswald was in the movie theater. He didn't kill J.D. Tippett. Kerry Thornley did. So we know that Kerry Thornley was the primary person who had been setting Oswald up for years. But also in Dallas, particularly, you have William Seymour who was seen all over the place impersonating Oswald most, most of the time at the shooting range. Um, and then ultimately, I don't believe Lee Harvey Oswald ever worked at the book depository, ever. It might have been a, a, a front for him, a contact that he you know his handler worked there, whatever. He would check in there. I do not believe he ever worked there. I believe that he was being impersonated at the book depository by William Seymour. So um, when it comes to Atsugi, you have some really interesting conflicting information. Um, when you look at Oswald's height, in reality, Oswald was probably somewhere between 5'7 and 5'9. But when you look at all the different uh, pieces of documentation that indicate Oswald's height while he was in the military, you've got everything from 5'5 five five to 5'11. Five A lot of the documents from Atsugi Because I mean, they did regular health checkups on these guys and whatnot. There are, and you have to put your height and weight on applications for things. There are at least six or seven pieces of information from Atsugi that indicate he was five foot 11. He was not even close to five foot 11. But who was close to five foot 11? Kerry Thornley. And Kerry Thornley had known Oswald personally since he entered the Marines um, before he went to the Soviet Union back in 1959. And Kerry Thornley is known to have been at at least three of the different locations besides Atsugi that Oswald was at, like the foreign language school in San Francisco. Um, there were a couple other places, all indicating Oswald was there and that he was five foot 11. So I have a feeling there some major shenanigans there. It's possibility that one of the Oswalds who was in the military was actually Kerry Thornley. Um, who, which would indicate he was most certainly CIA long before that. Um, but Kerry Thornley might have been labeled as one of the Oswalds, uh, at Atsugi. So there's always that chance Oswald was never there, but who knows? That's a, that's a leap I'm not willing to take as of yet, but trust me when I tell you there were Oswalds all freaking over the place. Um, in Dallas, I attribute all of the actions in Dallas to William Seymour and Kerry Thornley. So, um, oh, I just lost my screen share. I just lost my, hang on a second. Oh, here we go. Um, did I answer that question?
0: Yes, very good. Uh, I have the video here. Let me see if I can share my screen. All right, cool. Oh. Uh, can you see this? Yes, yes,
1: yes, 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 yes.
0: yes. I'm, echoing I'm echoing for some reason,
1: reason, 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 reason. This is the first of a series of latin and posting post interviews where a person is more or less directly concerned with the conflict between the United States and Cuba. In such post programs, we will present talks with people who are connected with Cuban refugee organizations, people who are connected with President Batista, and U.S. citizens with direct faith in the outcome of the Cuban situation. Tonight, we have a representative of probably the most controversial organization connected to Cuban construct. The organization is the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The first nurse, Lee Oswald, secretary of the New Orleans Chapter 2, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. This organization has long been on the Justice Department's black lives and is a group which is generally considered to be the leading pro body of the nation. All right, so um, that video... Um, is allegedly capturing candidly uh, Lee Oswald out on the street, handing out flyers for the fair play for Cuba committee. So let me talk a little bit about the fair play for Cuba committee before I explain that situation, because that situation was a staged event. It was another staged event in a long line of staged events uh, surrounding Oswald. So the fair play for Cuba committee originally formed back in April of 1960. Okay. Um, And here's the biggest problem with the fair play for Cuba committee. When you study fair play for Cuba committee and you study the uh, Kennedy assassination, the, everything you'll read about fair play for Cuba committee was that they were a pro Castro organization who were basically, they were basically communists and they wanted good relations with Castro, even though he was a communist. Well, here's the problem with that whole thesis. The fair play for Cuba committee started in April of 1960. Okay. Castro didn't become a communist until December of 1961. So you've got like at least a year and a half as the fair play for Cuba committee is in existence that Castro is on our side. He is not a communist at this point. The CIA was working very hard for years with him to overthrow Batista because they saw Castro as the lesser of two evils. So during the time, the one thing that the CIA did not have um, was the support of the American people, right? The American people in general didn't want us being interventionists anywhere. Um, you know, They still hadn't recovered from the uh, emotional scars of World War II. They did not want us getting involved in anything else. And so um, the Fair Play for Cuba committee for at least a year and a half is a pro-Castro organization because he's on our side. But then when Castro becomes a communist in, in December of 61, what does the Fair Play for Cuba committee do? they switch to communism and they start supporting Castro as a communist. When in reality, if they were a real organization that really was uh, pro-freedom, they would have denounced Castro immediately and probably, you know, dissolved the organization. But that's not what happened. What happened is they continued to support Castro as a communist. Doesn't make any sense, right? Well, when you Look back at the history, the man who was credited with forming the Fair Play for Cuba committee all throughout, like up until like post 2000 was a guy named uh, Vincent T. Lee. Uh, V.T. Lee is what they called him. And he all through the history books is credited with being the founder of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. However, um, that changed in uh, around 2005. In 2005, it was uh, the information was quietly released that the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was actually started by two guys named uh, Robert Tabor and Richard Gibson, both of which were uh, reporters for CBS News. And then later, it is determined uh, they must have outed him on purpose. Richard Gibson was outed in 2005 as having been a prolific spy for the CIA. All right. So the information that linked uh, Vincent Lee to the founding of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee suddenly changed around 2005. And then they started to credit Robert Tabor uh, with having been the founder of the organization. Um, Both of these guys were CIA. They were most certainly picked up uh, by Operation Mockingbird in the 1950s. And the Fair Play for Cuba committee was a CIA front the entire time. So once uh, the initial reasons for the Fair Play for Cuba committee, and this this is reality, the reality is, they they were a a public lobbying organization that came about to get the support of the American people behind us getting behind Castro. Okay. But once uh, Castro switched to communism, he fucked us big time. Right. So they're kind of left like in the wind with this fair play for Cuba committee. So what did they decide to do? They decide to keep it in place and they decide to start promoting communism because they may I believe that they could then keep chabs on anybody who got involved. Right. If anybody signed up for Fair Play for Cuba Committee, they knew that you were a communist. Right. And so I believe it ended up turning into some sort of, sort of Pro uh, operation in order to determine who the communists in the United States actually were. So a perfect front for uh, someone like Oswald, who they're trying to show as a communist. But he was a fake communist because he was an agent working with this fake communist organization. It's crazy. Right. Um, so. Some interesting things happen with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, and his associations. Allegedly, Oswald was seen down in Tampa and other cities attending certain meetings and uh, meeting with Vincent Lee, who had Vincent Lee legitimately did take over the organization once Castro came out as communist. But obviously, Vincent Lee was uh, working with the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, but yeah, this is a this is a pretty fascinating uh, quote. Uh, From a Newsweek article by Jefferson Morley on on Richard Gibson, it says, in a strange twist on April 26th, when the National Archives released thousands of documents pertaining to the assassination of President John Kennedy, they included three fat CIA files on Gibson. According to these documents, he had served U.S. intelligence from 1965 until uh, 77. However, come on. The 65, bullshit. He formed Fair Play for Cuba Committee in sixty April 1960. So he was CIA for long before the official story says he's CIA. And it says uh, this was well after Wright wrote his book, and it's not fear if Gibson had engaged in espionage before that period, but his files reveal his CIA code name was QR phone one, and his salary was as much as $900 a month, and that his uh, he was on various missions, and they said his attitude was that he was an energetic self-starter. So yeah, he was a gung-ho CIA agent for fucking years. Um, so the whole story of Fair Play for Cuba committee is completely a front. Um, and the uh, the video that you all just saw of Oswald handing out flyers for the Fair Play for Cuba committee on the street are, it was completely set up. So um, let me talk about those flyers for just a moment. Um, everyone assumed that Oswald had those printed. And so... Um, no one ever really did much looking into it until a guy named Harold Weisberg, who was like, uh, I consider Jim Garrison's investigation like the best into um, Kennedy. And then after that, uh, independently, a guy named Harold Weisberg, who was former OSS in World War II, he ended up uh, really turning his life into nothing but Kennedy research. And he's uh, he filled in a lot of gaps that uh, Garrison couldn't. So when Weisberg... Um, researches the flyers that Oswald was handing out on the street corner. He goes to the guy who uh, runs, it was called Jones Printing. He goes and meets with the guy Jones and he talks to him and he shows him a bunch of pictures. And he asks him to pick out the person who had had the the flyers printed. And in the stack of pictures were pictures of Oswald and a bunch of other people. And the guy picks out four photographs. All four photographs were of Carrie Thornley. Because Kerry Thornley looked, if you saw a picture of him back at the same time period, uh, you know, if you saw him from a distance, like 10 foot away, you would think it was Oswald. It's only when you get up close that you can tell it was a different person. That's how similar these guys look to each other. So Oswald worked for the Fair Play for Cuba, uh, Cuba Committee, which was a CIA front. He himself was not a communist. He was a CIA agent. And then the flyers he was handing out, he did not even have printed. Kerry Thornley had printed. So obviously it was an assignment. He was The flyers were printed and then handed him, here, go hand these out. That is how that went down. And then there are allegedly a bunch of letters between Oswald and Vincent Lee, the, the person who is now running the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And the first of these letters is on August 1st of 1963. In that letter to Vincent Lee, he tells him, hey, I got the P.O. box. I got flyers printed. He says in that letter on August 1st, I was handing out these flyers when I was confronted by a bunch of Cubans and we had a problem and the police were involved. Uh, and so I believe I've lost all my support here. Well, here's the problem with that letter. What he's referring to is the disturbance on the street with a guy named Carlos Brinier, who was a anti-Castro Cuban, who sees Oswald handing out these flyers and he goes and he confronts them and he pushes them and he knocks the flyers all over the street. Um, the cops come out, all of them get arrested for uh, disturbing the peace. Well, when the cops uh, write their report, uh, they have come to the conclusion that the event was staged. They, they didn't think it made sense. Um, Oswald knew Bernier. And so uh, the police themselves felt the entire incident was staged. Oswald writes to Vincent Lee August 1st about this incident. The problem is that incident didn't occur until August the 9th. Okay, so the letter that we have that's postmarked August 1st contains information on an event that won't happen for another week and a half. It is crazy. What it indicates is that the letters between Oswald and Vincent Lee were faked and they were written after the fact. And whoever did it didn't know the fucking date and they got it wrong. This kind of mistakes are all throughout the assassination. When you start looking for evidence that Oswald did certain things you will find problems all over the place, and that brings us to that brings us to Oswald's trip to Mexico City. Okay, so allegedly, Oswald um, on the twenty fourth of September, nineteen sixty three, allegedly Oswald takes a bus from New Orleans to go to. Mexico City. He takes it to like Brownsville or Laredo, one of those border towns. And then from there, he catches another bus down to Mexico City. It is there he is alleged to have gone to the Soviet and Cuban embassies, right? The idea is he's trying to get into Cuba or he's trying to make plans to get into Cuba post assassination, right? Like he would have a plan laid out for after he kills the president. He could then take that visa to Cuba and then hop on a plane or a bus or, or or not a bus, but you know, he can find a way to get to Cuba using the visa that he obtains. Well, he never gets a visa down there. Um, But some very, very interesting things surround uh, the trip to Mexico city. First off, the official story says that he had left his home on magazine street in new Orleans uh, he was seen with uh, suitcases, meaning that he was on his way out of town, um, but the bus he allegedly left on didn't leave until the next day at 1:45 p.m. However, there's no evidence that he was ever on any bus and they couldn't find any records of any hotel that he might have stayed at on that day. Uh, allegedly, he ends up in Mexico City on the 27th of September at 10 o'clock in the morning. Here's the problem with that. Um, Harold Weisberg located uh uh, in the fbi file see the fbi is when you look at the fbi files that you can look at for kennedy now that was like the official stuff they put out however there was a huge cache of fbi files that were never released that harold weisberg was actually able to get through i don't know freedom of information or whatever whatever process they had he was able to obtain many other documents what he found was that the fbi had an informant in new orleans who turned over uh, two documents to the FBI showing that Oswald was in New Orleans on the 26th of September and that he had closed out his PO box and left a forwarding address to Dallas on that date. That completely conflicts with the official story of Oswald having gone to Mexico City on the 24th of the 25th, because it took two or three days to get there. And if he was in New Orleans on the 26th, closing out his PO box, he was most certainly not on a bus to Mexico City. So Oswald never went to Mexico City. Here's some more interesting stuff about um, Mexico City. So uh, when, you, when you go to the uh, Mexican consulate, if you want to get a visa to another country, you have to go to their consulate. And so Oswald allegedly went to the uh, Mexican consulate in New Orleans on the 17th of September. The, when you look at the list of people who got visas on that date. There are two names that stand out. The first name is a guy named uh, William George Gordet or Gaudet, G-A-U-D-E-T. Okay. And there's another one named David Pierce Magyar, M-A-G-Y-A-R. Magyar, as it turns out, was a good friend of David Ferry and that he had known David Ferry when he was a pilot at Eastern Airlines and they had gone flying together. They had been friends allegedly not close friends, but still they were friends. That is extremely unusual for that person to have been getting a uh, a, a visa to Mexico City on the same date as Oswald. Now, William George Godet, he is an even more fascinating character. And this opened up a whole new set of investigations for me because Godet was a... Fully fledged, licensed, license carrying CIA employee. He was not an agent. Like, the, uh, there's different levels of CIA, right? You've got your officers, and the officers they manage like um, managers, and then the managers they uh, recruit um, high level um, independent contract agents, and then the independent contract agents they recruit their own people that they work with, right? So, Gaudette was extremely high up the high up the chain in New Orleans in the CIA. He was an actual employee. That's way above uh, the the contract agents that we all talk about, like Thornley and Shaw and David Ferry, who were contract agents. So Gaudette is a fully uh, card carrying CIA employee, and he was uh, he was basically a CIA propagandist. He was charged with distributing information, and he ran a magazine and a newsletter uh, that had to do with, um, Latin America. Uh, it was a magazine all about the politics of Latin America, but it was, uh, it was a, it was a CIA propaganda tool, right? It was meant to gain for Americans to read about what's going on in South America. And then, Hey, wish I wish the CIA would go in there and do something, right? That was the whole purpose of what he did. He was the, he was the person who got a visa. His visa number is one digit off from Oswald's indicating that him and Oswald, got their visas back-to-back at the office, right? Strange coincidence, right? Of course, there are no coincidences. So, um, uh, yeah, Gaudette, uh, when he's interviewed back in the early 60s, right after the assassination, he kind of denies all knowledge. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It must have just been coincidence. Uh, and even though he went there for business, uh, he got a, t- a tourist visa instead of a business visa. And he gave some reason why. But it all seemed to be kind of hokey. Uh, years later, he was interviewed by a guy named Bernard Fensterwald, who was a lawyer who was uh, he, uh, Bernard Fensterwald's an interesting character uh, because he most certainly at times was the lawyer for various CIA agents, uh, including E. Howard Hunt. Uh, but uh, when he interviews Gaudette, I believe it was around 1978, he interviews Gaudette. And Godet at this point, he's just, he's talking. He's not, he doesn't really care anymore. He's not with CIA anymore. And he basically admits that it was his job to keep an eye on Oswald. He talks about how he knew who Oswald was. He doesn't admit that he ever had any personal contact with him, but his office was at the trademark, right? The, the CIA run trademark in New Orleans. And the trademark is where Oswald was uh, seen handing out those leaflets. And so Godet Uh, was most certainly um, the CIA officer who was tasked with keeping an eye on Oswald. Um, The day that those flyers were being handed out, this is the chain of events that happens. So Gaudette sees Oswald out there handing out the flyers. He ends up calling a guy named Jesse Core, C-O-R-E. Jesse Core is the head of public relations for the trademark in New Orleans. And the trademark was run by Clay Shaw, right? It was Clay Shaw's organization that he ran for the CIA. Everybody who worked for the trademark directly was CIA or connected with Permindex or the Israeli Mossad. So, Clay Shaw is running uh the trademark. Jesse Core is the top PR guy for it. So, you have godette whose um visa number is one off from Oswald's, picked up on the 17th of September, you know, not a coincidence Um, on the day that the flyers were being handed out, he calls Jesse core on the phone and says, Hey, there's this guy out here um, handing out these uh, communist propaganda. So Jesse Mm core then calls a guy named John corporan, who was working at WDSU television. Right. And so then WDSU television, New Orleans sends out a camera crew and then they have that staged, fully staged event with oswald handing out flyers on the street now this is an important connection here because um when you know you have david ferry allegedly takes a trip to the winterland ice rink in houston uh the day of the assassination he goes ice skating the next day i've covered this a bunch of times david ferry never went to that ice skating rink it was actually a guy named sergio arcacha smith who was good friends with David Ferry, who was setting up a, uh, an alibi for him, right? It was He was posing as David Ferry to set up an alibi. Well, they ended up staying in a hotel called the Alamo, uh, it was the motel called the Alamo Motel. From the Alamo Motel, there were a couple phone calls made. One of them was from the hotel to WDSU Television, New Orleans, where John Corporan had been working, who was in contact with Jesse Core and Gaudette. Um, and to WSHO, which is a radio station. Now, let's hop back to Kerry Thornley. Kerry Thornley, who was impersonating Oswald all over the place, he admits to Garrison that he had good friends who were working at WDSU and WSHO. So I've concluded the phone calls that were made from the motel in Houston to these uh, television station and the radio station, I believe they were there trying to contact Carrie Thornley's contacts to make sure that he made it back to New Orleans because Kerry Thornley was in Dallas. He was impersonating Oswald around the Oak Cliff area. And then he ends up shooting J.D. Tippett. And then he is arrested, pulled out of the back of the movie theater at the Texas theater about five minutes after Oswald is arrested. But after Kerry Thornley is arrested out of the back of the theater, he is then seen in a car about five minutes later. So he is definitely the, the, the Dallas cops, uh, most likely string fellow, pull him out of the theater and then they let him go elsewhere because he was on a tight time schedule. I think that's why they did that. So he's in the, he's there. I believe those phone calls from the motel to WDSU and WSHO were to check and make sure that Kerry Thornley had made it back to New Orleans. So you can see this very complex web of people who are all, all fucking CIA- who are all connected to Oswald, who seemingly are not supposed to have anything to do with Oswald. So uh, the now that I'm starting to see uh, more of the connections between Oswald and some of the people who kind of just show up in the background of the literature, like Gaudette and R and Jesse Korr, um, I'm realizing that these people who have always been in the background of the official investigation are... Super high up in the Central Intelligence Agency, at at least in New Orleans and uh, around the areas that they lived. So yes, it's uh, it, it's just unfucking believable. When you really, uh, you know, I thought I had a pretty solid picture of what had happened, and I and as far as the shooting itself does uh, goes, I, I absolutely do. But now that I'm starting to see more of the connections in the background um, that led to the assassination. Um, it it, it just shows me that this operation involving Oswald, the duplicate Oswald's, uh, and everything that happened with him, including the false defection and all the actions he was supposed to have taken, um, you know, showing that he was a communist. This was all part of a big, big script that was probably, um, put together by a guy named George Joannidis. George Joannidis was the head of psychological warfare for the CIA, uh, in 1963, And he was based out of Miami, where he was charged with handling the anti-Castro Cubans who were coming up and being smuggled into the country. Um, During the summer of 1963, for reasons unknown, um, he was transferred to New Orleans, where he spent about three or four months up till the time of the assassination before going back to uh, his station in Miami. So this thing was conducted at the highest levels of the Central Intelligence Agency. I have no doubts everyone was in on this from Hoover to Allen Dulles. You know, it it was it's just absolutely mind boggling.
0: And what's terrifying to me is everything, every major event that we've seen throughout our history is scripted on some level and has been preplanned on some level and you look at the level of spycraft and even technology and connections that they had back during the jfk assassination well fast forward to today man it's probably uh <laughs> unfathomable not only the technology they're using to pull up these ops but oh yeah connections and now the the people that are involved and what they're trying to do with you know false flag operations staged events uh for the modern age it's terrifying to know uh, to think about what they could be doing now
1: yeah and so you know i forget what year this was maybe it was around 9-11 maybe just after 9-11 but the cia got busted kidnapping somebody In like switzerland okay so this person who was connected to al-qaeda or something along those lines um the local police and the local um you know federal police they realize this guy's been snatched up off the street you know and so they try to put together who actually did it and this was early days in like the modern digital age early 2000s right so um the cia ends up getting busted as having been responsible for this kidnapping because the fucking cops were smart enough to know to check the metadata and the CIA didn't know to check the metadata, right? Like the, the way that your phone pings off certain towers and what phones were where and the fucking local cops were able to put two and two together, realize who was what. And they uncovered this huge event that was a kidnapping by the CIA that got busted through metadata. Well, the CIA, I promise, never made that mistake again. So they had to have come up with new ways to overcome (laughs) things as stupid as that, right? Like, like I don't like, the metadata on my phone scares the living hell out of me because they can tell, you can just walk past somebody on the street with a phone in your pocket and they got a phone in their pocket and the CIA can tell that you walked past them on the street, right? So yeah, the the digital age, um, it's much harder for us to get away with things. And I have a feeling it's much easier For them to get away with things because they found uh, they have found um, ways to get around this stuff. Um, I want to back
0: doors into everything,
1: every fucking thing, everything. That's why open source technologies are so important. You know, Um, having the code be able to be seen by all. And this is what um, uh, Elon Musk is wanting to do with Twitter. He's wanting to make the code open source. So you can see exactly what's going on and see how they're, how the algorithm works and everything. And right now, you he, he's
0: not the antichrist. I don't know. Still undecided. I don't know. It's still
1: yeah. the jury's out on him. I think that's how everyone feels, because in on one hand, he wants to put chips in your fucking brain. You know, <laughs> and the other hand, he wants you to have free speech. He's like,
0: Obviously playing both sides pretty fucking hard. So, you know, where is that put him? I don't know.
1: He's probably a representative of the reptilians or something. Who the hell knows? <laughs> um, one thing that's kind of I found fascinating uh, about Oswald's trip to Mexico City is that he goes to the so he goes to the Soviet embassy and he goes to the the Cuban embassy. He's trying to get visas to get into Cuba. I want to read a conversation. So he goes to the Russian embassy and they deny him a visa. So he goes to the Cuban embassy and they deny him a visa. So while he is at the Cuban embassy, he calls the Russian embassy, and I want to read this excerpt of the phone call. This is actually the majority of the call, and the when people analyze the recording, there were actually recordings of this stuff. Um, people analyze the recordings. They said that Oswald's Russian was bad. It was not It was not fluent. It was broken Russian. Um, barely just enough to get the conversation done, which is crazy because Oswald speaks fluent Russian. So it's definitely not Oswald, but this conversation, Oswald, I was in your embassy and spoke to your console just a minute. And then the phone is taken by someone on the Soviet side who continues the conversation. And then the the Soviet uh, embassy says, what do you want? Oswald says, please speak in Russian. And so the rest of the conversation is in Russian. The Soviet embassy says, what else do you want? Oswald says, I was just now at your embassy and they took my address. Soviet embassy says, I know that. Oswald then says, I did not know it then. I went to the Cuban embassy and asked them for my address because they have it. And then the Soviet embassy replies, why don't you come again and leave your address with us? It's not far from the cuban embassy and then oswald says well i'll be there right away this conversation makes no sense whatsoever i mean there's some sort of coded language going on here between, between whoever's saying they're oswald and the people of the soviet embassy and then when we get photographs of the people who were allegedly oswald at the embassy it doesn't look anything like it it's actually turns out to be a guy who's all we know about him is his code name is Saul sage um, and that he'd been involved in some other operations. And he looks like a big husky Russian dude. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, but it was most certainly not Oswald who went to Mexico City. And so the thesis of my book as a whole is that Oswald did not do anything that Oswald is alleged to, to have done. Uh, we know that he was a Marine. We know he went to the Soviet Union. That's about it. Every single job that Oswald allegedly had, we can't prove that he ever actually worked there. All the documentation showing that he worked at these different places um, has problems with it. Wrong dates, wrong information, something. And all of the places that he allegedly worked were most certainly CIA fronts, like Riley Coffee. He allegedly worked at Riley Coffee, where he uh worked as like a chain greaser. They had a big processing plant for coffee beans, and allegedly it was his job just to put grease on the chain. That was the, supposed to be the whole job. Well, Four other people who had previously worked at this coffee company went to go work for either NASA or Lockheed or Boeing or one of these. But did did they actually go to work for those companies? No, because those companies were being used at the time as financial fronts for the Central Intelligence Agency. If they needed a guy to have a legit job on paper they would funnel their money through these other companies and the guy would get a paycheck, but really that money was coming from the CIA. So he could go out and do operations. Um, four people who worked at Riley coffee ended up going to work at these, uh, you know, big aerospace companies. Uh, I don't see how a coffee company is a good background for someone wanting to be a, a rocket scientist. So definitely front stuff. Um, then when you look at like Jagger's Charles Scovald was a photo processing company that. Uh, had a contract with the Department of Defense. Um, so basically when they would do aerial photos in Vietnam and whatever, you know, they would do spy photos, the U-2. Okay, so the U-2 photos that were taken by Gary Powers over the Soviet Union, they got processed by Jagger's Charles Skovald, and Oswald allegedly worked there as well. Another thing about Jagger's Charles Skovald, on the day of the assassination, one hundred percent of the cameras that were used to take pictures around Dealey Plaza were confiscated by the FBI. OK, and all of the film was processed by Jagger's Charles Scovall. Right. So all of the photographs, one hundred percent of the photographs of Dealey Plaza from that day passed through the hands of the FBI and the CIA before we got to see him, which accounts for all of the photo obfuscation is all kinds of stuff in the photos that were definitely tampered with. Um And that will bring us to the the backyard photos, okay? So um, I did a a deep dive into the rifle. Oswald never ordered that rifle. Um, There's problems with the PO box and it was allegedly shipped to Alec Heidel at his PO box, but Alec Heidel was not one of the names on the PO box that could receive mail. So the rifle would have been rejected and sent back because that name was not on the box that that was supposed to have received it. On top of that, the money order that was used For the ordering of the rifle, Um, well, number one, it no longer exists, it disappeared. All we have is a photostatic copy of it. A lot of the evidence that we got from the FBI, they say, oh, we don't have the original, we just have the photocopy of it. Okay, so the originals were all fakes. The money order allegedly used to um, purchase the rifle was a complete fake. And we know that because it has an ink stamp on the front that bled through all the way to the back. And the money orders that were actually used in 1963 were printed on cardstock. So there wouldn't have been any bleed through because cardstock is thick and that's the whole purpose of it. You're going to have stamps all over it. You can't have it bleed through yet on Oswald's money order. It did indicating it was fake. So um, now we have the backyard photographs. Everyone has seen the backyard photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald holding a rifle and his, and his revolver and communist newspapers. Okay. And it's Oswald said, he's like, that's not me. It looks like someone took my head and pasted on someone else's body. Well, Absolutely, that is what happened because Marina Oswald swears she took the picture. She never wavered in her stories about taking that picture. And who was impersonating Oswald down in New Orleans in 1962? Well, that was Carrie Thornley. Carrie Thornley undoubtedly is the person who was posing for the backyard photographs um, with him holding the rifle. So yes, um, that means that uh, besides having forged. Oswald's handwriting on the back of the photograph to George Shield, and on a couple other documents that the FBI said was clearly her handwriting. She was setting up Oswald with Carrie Thornley, taking pictures of him in the backyard with the rifle, which were then probably altered at Jagger's trial Scoval. That's probably who did the photo alteration on that. And then um what else is there oh yes then so I have William Seymour impersonating Oswald at the shooting range in Dallas um he didn't do it once or twice he was there at least five times and I have the statements from everybody who interacted with this person and it was most certainly William Seymour because he was seen there on at least one occasion with a husky Latino who had a pockmarked face that's Lawrence Howard and that that they were seen getting into Lawrence Howard's it was looked. it was described as a jalopy Uh, But it wasn't a jalopy. It was actually a a green Rambler station wagon. So I definitely have shown that uh, William Seymour was impersonating Oswald at the rifle ranges. uh, But there is another place up in Oak Cliff uh, that was a a big open field and people would often go there and shoot rifles even though it wasn't really a rifle range. Well, uh, since Oswald never had that rifle, he never went to the rifle range. But I have multiple witnesses who saw Oswald Uh, firing the rifle in this like grassy area that he was shooting at like big bundles of hay. Um, And he was seen there with a pregnant woman. Now, how many pregnant women are in the story so far? Well, there's actually two, but the important one is Marina. When at the time uh, that Oswald was seen shooting the rifles at these bales of hay, he was seen there with a pregnant woman. And I know it's not Oswald because they said that Oswald left driving in a car, a two-toned blue and white Chevy, Which matches the description of ruth payne's car okay so carrie thornley was in dallas fort worth area he was firing at these uh test firing the rifle at these bales of hay and he was seen there with a pregnant woman that pregnant woman is no other person that could have been except for marina and if marina was the one taking the pictures of the backyard photographs of carrie thornley in new orleans it was most certainly her with carrie thornley firing the rifle in dallas uh so yes Um, Marina was so deep in this thing. She was there. So what I think will happen with Marina is the, the Soviets knew that she, that he was a spy. And so they let him take her back to the U S because she was a Russian agent. Okay. Her uncle, having been the third person in line in the KGB, she was most certainly at least supposed to, you know, report information back to them. I have no doubts. That's what happened. And then once they got back into the U S um, The CIA isn't fucking stupid. They knew what the Russians were up to. So they probably went to her and they made her a double agent. That's what happened. And then they had her participate in all the setup and all that stuff. And uh, that is where I'm at with my Oswald stuff. We have a couple other people who had impersonated Oswald, um, but not really. Like a guy named Larry Crawford went to the uh, Texas Employment Commission and he said his name was Lee Harvey Oswald. And he was trying to get a job, but he was when he went there. He was a real dick. Like he was just a he was bombastic, and he was uh, he was angry and violent. At one point during his meeting with her, he smashed his hand down on the table, which knocked over a flower vase, which spilled all over her. So he did things to stand out in her mind. But then later. When she's interviewed about it, she picks out Larry Crawford as the man who came and visited her, who identified himself as Oswald. So there was most certainly an effort to send people to different places to identify himself as Oswald to paint this picture of an angry communist. So.
0: Man, that is crazy.
1: I know. Right. And it just goes to show how the the depths, uh, how far the depths of deception actually went, you know, because this is how I see it. The assassination of President Kennedy is the most important event in world history. And they fucking knew it. And they spent a year, you know, at least taking their time, being careful, planting this false trail, because if you bring this to an average person, Joe Schmoe on the street and say, yeah, the CIA spent two years with fake Oswald setting them up in advance, you know, they're going to look at you like your fucking hair is on fire, like you're totally crazy. But this is what spies do. It's called tradecraft. Uh, You know, it involves the use of dead drops and body doubles and all kinds of. Uh, methods of obfuscation and misdirection. Misdirection is the big thing. Hey, look to the right while we do this to the left. And that's exactly what they did with Oswald. Oh, and here's another thing I want to comment. I forgot to comment on Oswald in Mexico City. The visa that he applied for, okay, uh, there are two types of visas, a P5 and a P8. Um, The difference is one is a visa that's good for 15 days. And another one is a visa that's good for six months. The application that Oswald allegedly put in was for a visa that would last six months. But when he received his visa, he got one for 15 days. And that's not how the system worked. If you applied and were rejected, you got rejected, you had to reapply for the correct visa using the correct paperwork. But that's not what happened with Oswald. Oswald applied for a six-month visa and he got a 15-day visa. So yeah, everything about the Mexico City trip was completely staged. Um, it was most likely all set up by uh george gaudette who then set up oswald again with jesse core on the day that he was handing out the flyers who called his contact john corporan at wdsu television so yeah everything about oswald that we know has been nothing more than a series of staged events meant to make him look like he was an angry communist and some of the staged events were meant to make him look like he was in certain places at certain times um so then you have, uh, let me talk about uh, Oswald's boarding houses where Oswald allegedly lived in the two months leading up to the assassination. So he first, um, he first is supposed to have lived at a uh, 621 North Marsalis, which is in Northern Oak Cliff. And there he um, rented a room from a woman named Mary Bledsoe. Well, it turns out um, Mary Bledsoe uh, had a first cousin whose name was R.D. Matthews. R.D. Matthews was a big shot mobster in Las Vegas. He's almost exclusively credited with the construction and design of, um, oh, I, what the hell's that name of that hotel? There's a famous hotel. Um, oh, the Strat. Uh, the, yeah, it was called the Strat in, uh, in Las Vegas. He is credited with basically designing that building and having it built and uh, the, uh, Mary Bledsoe uh, was his first cousin. And so there's a connection to Jack Ruby right through Mary Bledsoe at that boarding house. Mary Bledsoe then allegedly witnesses Oswald on the bus as he's fleeing Dealey Plaza on the uh, on the Dallas Transit Company bus. So but then she was determined by FBI, to never have been on that bus because everything that she said was wrong. So obviously Mary Bledsoe and the boarding house at 621 Marsalis, which is connected to Jack Ruby, was most certainly part of the setup. Odds are, Oswald never fucking lived there. The second boarding house that he's supposed to have gone to was at 1026 North Beckley, where he is supposed to have fled to to get his revolver and his jacket after the assassination. And it's alleged from there that he walked to go kill J.D. Tippett. That's none of that is what happened Oswald, I can definitely say, was not living at 1026 North Beckley. He was allegedly staying in room O. Or I'm sorry, he was allegedly using the alias of OH Lee, right? For whatever reason. But when you actually pull the documentations on OH Lee, it turns out there was a guy named Herbert Leon Lee who was actually staying in room O. At uh, not at the time of the assassination, he had moved out on November 1st, but he was there for the entire month of October. What it looks like is that the paperwork for Herbert Leon Lay, who stayed in room O, was altered to make it look like OH Lee and that Oswald had been staying there. So when Herbert Lee ends up getting interviewed by the FBI, he admits, Yeah, I was there. I stayed in room O, which Oswald was supposed to have stayed in room O starting on the 14th of October, but, um, Herbert Leon Lee was staying in room O for the whole month of October. So the room Oswald was supposed to have been staying at, at the boarding house, Oswald wasn't staying in because Herbert Leon Lee was staying there. And then Herbert Leon Lee says that he never saw anybody matching, um, Oswald's description, never knew Oswald. He doesn't know anything about, um, Oswald having ever been at that building. So, um, and then at the same time, you have November 1st, where uh, Herbert Leon Lee, uh, supposed to have moved out of that boarding house, Oswald opened up a new P.O. box in Dallas, which is not in the official story. Oswald opened a new P.O. box, and on that P.O. box, he put the address of 3610 North Beckley, but there is no 3610 North Beckley. So there's a lot of uh, kind of debates amongst Kennedy researchers as to why he put that address, if he put that address, um, but Like I've said, my thesis overall is that Oswald didn't do any of the things that we attribute to him. None. Zip. Nada. Um, And so that's uh, I think that's pretty much everything I wanted to talk about. But yeah, Oswald is a mostly a construct. There was definitely a real person named Oswald, but he most certainly had some sort of duplicate post 1947. We know that because of all the records. Then when he goes off to the Marines, um, you have some questionable you know, questionable information regarding whether, uh, whether or not he was at Atsugi because of the height differences on all the applications and stuff. Um, and then he comes back where he stays in Dallas, and then he goes to New Orleans for the summer and then back to Dallas. Um, some people kind of speculate that the reason they moved him to New Orleans was because the only people he was associating with in Dallas, like George de Mornshield and that whole white Russian community, they were devoutly anti-communist because they had come from the oppression of the communist regimes you know, emigrate to America and they're kind of labeled as the white Russian community, um, which means there are a lot of, they weren't all Russians, but a lot of them came from those Eastern Bloc Russian speaking countries. Those people were all devout anti-communists. So I think that they moved him from Dallas back to New Orleans to break that association, right? Because you can't say the guy's a communist if all the people he's hanging out with are anti-communists and definitely connected to the CIA. So when they move him back to New Orleans is when he really jumps off with all the fair play for Cuba committee and the overt communist stuff. So he was most certainly moved there to uh, get caught on video. You know, everything that we know about Oswald, we've, they happen to capture on, on film somewhere, which is just insane. So all the things they want us to know uh, about him uh, being a communist, there's just too much evidence, too much information pointing to the fact that he's a communist. But then when you dig into that communist stuff, it all falls apart. And it, it uncovers the techniques of the CIA who are most certainly engaged in this absolutely massive, elaborate setup. And the thing is, just because you, you literally there's probably 500 people involved in this setup of Oswald all over the place in multiple countries. But were all of them in on the assassination? I would absolutely say no. I would say that you didn't have to have all of them in. All, all you had to do was have them in on the setup uh, of creating this communist persona. And they don't even have to know why. But he was most likely, it was most likely a setup to get him into Cuba so he could be a spy down in Cuba. That's kind of what I'm assuming. And then um, only a small group of people, probably 30 to 40 people, knew about the assassination itself and participated in the actual assassination. Whereas all these other people who participated in the setup didn't necessarily know what uh, was going on. Because remember, in the CIA, oftentimes you'd get an assignment that was part of an operation. That you didn't know what the operation was. All you had to do was go, hey, on this date, go deliver these letters somewhere, right? Or on this date, you need to be seen here. That's it. That's all those people knew. They didn't have to know the assassination was going to take place in order for them to be a conspirator at the lower levels and in the handling of Oswald and the setup of Oswald.
0: Right on, man. I know we got a few questions. Uh, I have time to field one more, but if you guys would like to leave those questions for Corey, uh, you can email me forbiddenknowledge.news@gmail.com. news, gmail.com. I'll forward them over to him. Uh, and his website is coreyhuge.org. that contains all the work that he's been doing.
1: But if you go to um, support FKN.com, or if you go to buy me a coffee.com slash forbidden, um, I have set up a JFK chat Uh, for supporters only. You can get access to it for as little as five bucks. So uh, I highly suggest you go uh, to buymeacoffee.com slash forbidden, Um, you know, become a supporter, kick over five bucks, you'll get access to all my research and and, uh, you'll be able to chat with me as I continue writing this book.
0: Perfect. Yes. Uh, I'm glad you said that. I want to mention that at the end and that again, the quick way to do that support FKN.com. I also have the links right there in description. Just click it and you'll have access. Uh, all right. The final question I want to end on today is snake Jones. I know you've probably answered this many times before throughout our discussions, but I like to hear if your answers evolved any or change snake Jones ask what's the motive, what's the motive on the entire operation. And I know that what we're seeing today probably couldn't have been possible without this particular event, right?
1: Um, you mean the big picture of the assassination, like why the assassination occur? Yeah. So a lot of people will point to the Federal Reserve. They'll point to, you know, his changes to the Federal Reserve. They'll point to uh, Vietnam. They'll point to a whole bunch of reasons that really in the end are superfluous. And the reason I say they're superfluous is because in order to understand why, the why of the assassination, you have to understand the global power structure. And in, in order to understand that, you got to go back to World War II and what we did with the Nazis and the Galen organization after World War II. And you really need to come to understand the relationship that we have with Israel. And the reality is uh, in the CIA, the James Angleton, who was a number two guy in the CIA, he was undoubtedly the highest level Israeli spy we've ever had. He was an American. But ultimately, his loyalties lied with Israel. And you can learn about that by studying his family background. And at the time, um, since the 1950s, they had been building a nuclear reactor in the Negev desert uh, in the city of Demona or in the town of Demona. And uh, Kennedy knew about it. It was exposed by Time magazine in 1960. And. Everything, all the companies that were involved with Permindex, Permandex was like a, a, a kind of a front company that was set up to, to for the funneling of money. And all the board members of Permandex were members of either the Israeli Mossad, the CIA, or the U.S. Mafia. And so when you really come to understand the relationships and who was sat at the top of the pyramid, it all comes back to the Damona nuclear reactor and Kennedy's um, unwillingness to continue to fund the nation of Israel, uh, and that's ultimately why he was killed. He was going to cut all aid, and they could not have survived without us. They saw it as a, uh, a a terminal event for the nation. If we cut off aid, they most certainly would have been invaded by the surrounding Arab countries, and so ultimately that was the reason. Now, all these other reasons. Yeah, there were things that got, there were there were problems that got solved by assassinating Kennedy, but that was not the primary reason. Um, and that's that's the answer I can give since we're on YouTube.
0: Right on. Yes, uh, there's plenty more answers. Click those links in the description. Go to uh, supportfkn.com or buy me a coffee slash forbidden. You're gonna get access to all that information that Corey was just talking about,
1: and. Uh, <coughs> Let me uh, give them. Let me give them a real quick update on the book. So, yeah, in the past, uh, I think it's about three weeks today. I have cranked out somewhere in the neighborhood of forty-five pages um, on you know in a typical word processor. Once that actually gets formatted uh, into into the book format, that's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty to sixty-five pages that I've written just in the last three weeks. So um, it's 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 really great because. When I was diehard into my research, it was obsession. It was, I wake up in the morning, I would hit the documents and I would fucking read until I was blue in the face. And uh, I spent about three years in that mode where most of my energies were going into just the research. I kind of, you know, because of other responsibilities and working with with the Forbidden Knowledge Network, I have other things to do. I kind of put the research on the back burner, but I have been back in that mode, fully engrossed a morning till night I'm reading and this time I'm writing up what I'm reading. And so, yeah, I'm back in that mode. It's really been awesome. And I'm hoping to have the book completely done probably mid summer. I'm thinking like early July. um, And I'm thinking the book will be formatted and ready for production in probably August or early September at the absolute latest. And uh, it's going to be the definitive Book on what happened to Kennedy. So please. Part uh, one, right? <laughs> that, yeah, because like uh, a lot of stuff that I'm coming across, I can't put in the book because that's even though it's important. Like, if I were to spend, if I could write a book just on the Mexico City trip. I mean, there's 200 pages worth of information that I could write just on Mexico City trip. But instead, I'm condensing that to a handful of paragraphs. You know, I don't have much of a choice because if I want to get past Oswald and get to the nuts and bolts of the assassination, and I'm really focusing on the shooters because that's what everyone wants to know. Who pulled the triggers? And so the focus of the book is to give a little bit of backstory and just enough supporting information to prove the relationships between all the people involved, which I can then connect directly to the actions that happened on November 22nd in Dealey Plaza. So yeah, there's definitely gonna be other books I'm gonna come out with afterwards.
0: Well, I can say for sure that you 100% have put probably more time and effort than any other JFK researcher that I've heard about, and uh, the book is going to be amazing. So thank you, audience, for coming today. Uh, Check out those websites, and we will be back once again tomorrow for a new episode of Forbidden Knowledge News. We'll see you then.